Welcome to episode 92 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast, your weekly Milwaukee Brewers podcast. I'm Steve Garshinsky. Joining me today are Ryan Topp, and back this week is J.P. Breen. J.P., how are you doing? It's been a little bit. It has been a while. It's good to be back on the podcast. It threw me off a little bit because you said welcome instead of saying it. Like It's a new intro to the to the podcast, and I got thrown off for a little bit. I worry that I'm going to get the number wrong, and then it's stuck on tape forever. I think so. it's been almost a month since the three of us were all together for a podcast i think we've rotated i'm sure everybody's missing it and i know what everybody did miss this week was the mini pod yep didn't have a chance to do it this week i was driving through you know the middle of nowhere through a lot of cornfields it's one of the like the most jarring things and like most of the time they've got big signs or whatever to show you when you're crossing state lines or whatever when i was driving through illinois and iowa i had no idea what state i was in for like two hours it's all just terrible just had zero idea where I was. I mean, and Illinois to- and Iowa, they are separated by a rather large river. So, right? I mean, yes, it, they, they are separated by a river, but it like winds and there's more than one. Uh, so you cross a couple of rivers and as you're going until you see like, you know, so like I was like, maybe I'm in Iowa already. And then I saw a sign for Davenport. And I was like, oh, not yet. So it was just a lot of. uh a lot of wondering where I was and thinking I was much closer than I was. And then looking down, found out I still had like two hours to drive. That's the and worst. I didn't, and I ended up not seeing any of the, the solar eclipse. So <laughs> lucky on that one, Ryan, you don't have to be jealous. Wow. Wow. That was an unprovoked broadside. It wasn't. Jay put it on Twitter. It's called a, a throwback or a callback. A callback. callback. Yeah. A callback. Advanced podcasting. Advanced. That's what's- yeah. So, uh, Hey, if you like this banter and you want to get JP's next mini pod, which should be coming out this week. Yep. Uh, so actually I had a, a really good request from one of our listeners uh, kind of looking for a quick explainer on some of uh, like advanced statistics. So trying to figure out what. So we use some of the statistics on here. I use some of them in one of the, the mini pods. And with all this stuff about StatCast saying you know, can you just give a quick rundown of like what some of these are, what they mean? Uh, another listener actually sent me a, a direct message and asked to talk a little bit about like when do statistics become sustainable? Like when are we kind of leaving small sample size times uh, and just kind of giving a rundown on some of the stuff that we talk about on here. So I, it should be good. I'm looking forward to it. Talk a, a lot about uh, some of the, the contextual stats that we've been starting to bring into the podcast a little bit. So for people that haven't kind of been with us for a longer period of time or folks that don't necessarily go on fan graphs or BP or all of those things, getting a, a quick rundown of these things so you can be smarter than your friends when you go to the bar. If you're looking for books on those, there's a couple of good ones. Brian Kenny did a pretty good one and Keith Law did a pretty good one in the last three or four years that do a pretty good job of being primers for baseball statistics. So if you're inclined I, to read that way, that would be another yeah, place but to I, go. But I will say one of the most interesting things about the last few years is there's a bunch of new ones. Um, so you're you're not just talking about some of the stuff that BP has come out, but the fact that StatCast is kind of inundating people with statistics at all times. It's very difficult. And this is actually not to get into it too much. And I know that we got to get going. But like one of my biggest things with StatCast is it gives you so much, so many numbers, so many statistics and so much information. It's actually really difficult to tell what's meaningful or like a lot of the time there's like, well, that came off the bat at 98 miles an hour. And you're like, great. Like, that doesn't actually mean anything to me. Um, I can't tell what's significant. And when people talk about, like, average exit velocity has been this. And you're like, well, is it sustainable? Or does that, like, predictive of future events? And they all go, I don't know. Great. Good. You you must must follow the the Cubs uh, Bleacher Nation uh, Twitter account. I, I don't, but I do kind of uh, through you. <laughs> Steve Steve the, does like to post Loves those. the exit velocity. Yeah, and so you Darvish is going to turn it around one of these days. So we're going to kind of, uh, I'm going to take, you know, a good 20 minutes or so and not necessarily go into how all of these things are uh, calculated, but just kind of give a rundown of like when you see these sort of statistics, what does it mean? What should you take away from it? Where where should you look and uh, and how can you better understand some of the stuff that we throw out here from time to time? So that's what I'll be getting out on. Uh, so it'll be Wednesday morning for you. all yeah, so if you want to get that and make sure you get the rest of uh, our episodes when they come out every Monday morning, make sure to uh, subscribe to Milwaukee's Tailgate on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and you can also rate and review the podcast. Uh, we want list your questions, so review, review, so follow Milwaukee's Tailgate. 
You can keep reviewing us too. <laughs> At this rate, it's not going to be too many stars, is it? Make sure you just make sure you specifically review Steve. Yes. If you're going to do it, just talk about me the entire time because that's what I like to see in every review. Uh, anyways, <laughs> follow Milwaukee's Tailgate on Twitter at MKE Tailgate. Email questions to milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com or follow our Facebook page. You can also follow the three of us on Twitter. And I corrected JP's Twitter handle finally. So you'll actually find everyone this time. So go check that out. Uh, and then finally, if you want to support the podcast, you can visit patreon.com slash MKE Tailgate. Our ball and glove patrons and above receive the monthly minor league extra podcast. Milwaukee's tailgate is sponsored by Carbon 4 Brewing and their English style malt bombs and perfectly balanced hop grenades. You know them for their great beers like Dragon Flute, Block Party, and their flagship Fantasy Factory IPA. Some current spring and summer seasonals that are now available include Tokyo Sauna, Pale Ale, Fruit Punch, Fantasy Factory IPA, which I finally had. Did I tell you that? I think we talked about it last time, maybe. Mm-hmm. So check that one out. Radicats, New England style IPA, and you can start looking for cans of America AF Watermelon Kolsch. And also, you can get 20% off of merch in the Carbon 4 web store with the promo code MKE Tailgate. As always, check out carbon4.com for more information. Carbon 4 Beer Brilliance. Hey, I don't know if you know this, but Christian Yelich is really, really good at baseball. Just hit another homer. Yeah, so we're recording during the Sunday's game. Sunday yeah, afternoon's like, game. Would like to point out, uh, like to point out that that came off the bat at 104 miles per hour. What does that mean? Don't. I'm, it was. <laughs> it means he hit it hard enough to like clear the fence. Yeah. Well, he hit it but, down the. Uh, he hit it right down the left field line too. Oh, does that a, does that mean the the exit velocity is somehow how different? It was serious oppo power. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, he he's got power to all fields. Bronze ripping the ball. Bronze actually been crazy good in may he has i I was i was was ready to cut bait i was gonna say just get rid of him eat the contract and move on well he had that six for eight and then he had a game where he hit a couple homers he's yes he's hit besides that six for eight that's when he turned the corner i think well before coming into today's game i was looking some of the stuff up because i haven't had a chance to watch too many games over the past week so just trying to do some research like uh a non-professional um because I'm not a professional. I almost said like as a professional and that would have been stupid. But uh so he's at 20 games. He's hitting 397 coming into Sunday for the for the month and his on-base percentage is up near 500. He's been absolutely smoking the ball. Best player actually according to if you if you're really into to small sample size in terms of wins above replacement, which you shouldn't be, but I'm going to I'm going to quote it just because I want to see if Ryan thinks it has anything to do with the launch angle revolution. He's got the best war of anyone any Brewers hitter in may is that because of the launch angle ryan yes it is absolutely because of the launch angle because the angle he's launching it at the the angle of launch the the angle is out of the park angle so definitely a good thing uh so we had kind of a spotty week of baseball they were Mm -hmm. off monday they were off thursday they had a day game on wednesday yeah they didn't have off days for like weeks and then they get just you know inundated with them well that's the way it it's going to kind of be like that the rest of the summer there's a lot more off days i was just looking they have six off days in august and then they only have two in september this year whereas last year they had like every thursday off in september which is crazy because with that ugly ugly roof all those off days are going to hold thank you andy where the teams without the ugly roof are going to be playing extra games in uh what august probably august september they'll say if i if i've learned anything from last year cubs fans will say it's a conspiracy that the brewers get off days well when they don't and that, that makes perfect sense yeah totally checks out so okay they had uh what do you have a five and five road trip is that what they did yep they were five and five on a road trip which considering you're going through uh chicago uh philadelphia and atlanta being five and five in ten games like that, it's a pretty damn good road trip. Like you're you're facing one of the tougher road trips any team is gonna have all year, really. Three top ten ish teams in baseball. Yeah. So they're, coming out of that five and five is fantastic, really. Yeah, which we kind of touched on last week. And then they got back home, they had kind of the spotty schedule and uh a bit of a rough showing against Cincinnati. They went two and two, but that Wednesday game didn't look like it was gonna have a positive ending when it started out. I think would Peralta give up or no, who was starting? Uh, that was Davies. Davies. Yes. Gave up like six in the first or yeah, something. You had two starters who had been overperforming their peripherals. Yeah. You know, Castillo was the, uh, the red starter. Both had 
pretty rough games, though Davies was able to settle down and at least get into the middle innings. Whereas Castillo had to be yanked early because they were still trying to protect their lead, which, you know, that thing went back and forth kind of crazily. So, but yeah, I mean, you're looking at now uh, four and one against Cincinnati for the season, which that's kind of where you want to be. You want to, you know, be making hay against teams like you need to make hay against teams like Cincinnati and Pittsburgh because you don't have that many other opportunities to do it. So, yeah. So, but Philly's kind of turning the tables on the Brewers uh, in this series after the Brewers went two and one against him in Philly, the Brewers are looking to hold on on, on Sunday and they're up five. They're up four, nothing four, nothing at the moment. Yeah. It's uh, part, nope. It, they are five, nothing now. Five, nothing. Yeah. So anyways, kind of flip looks like they're probably going to be three and three against Philly. In no, the uh, they were three and one at Philly. It was a four game series. Yes, it was. Oh shit. That's right. Yeah. So I forget they have all these four game series early in the season. Anyways, Philly came back, played strong in Miller Park, but yeah, you know, it's the way it goes. Um, there have been some questionable pitching performances. I know uh, uh, Claudio. There's been a lot of discussion about Claudio, and we have a question about it. Okay. We have a Twitter question from uh, Jerry Eldred. He said, Is Alex Claudio a major league pitcher next year with the new three batter rule? And do you think Claudio and Elbers are locks to last the season given how poorly they've pitched so far? I wouldn't say they're locks to last the season. Uh, I think Claudio is close to a lock to last the season, but Albers could, you know, if he pitches poorly, he could very easily be out. So I think the issue with Claudio is, and it's an interesting situation because he has been in some senses, the pitcher that they want him to be because he has a, uh, his, OPS against against left-handed batters is under 500, 467. So he is doing the job in terms of getting left-handed batters out that he's brought in for. But heading forward now, you're going to be in a situation where guys have to face more than one batter, and you, he still has to face quite a few righties, and righties have just lit him up this year. Like, they, he currently has a 1.147 OPS against for right-handed batters. They're just lighting him up. And in a situation like like uh, Saturday's game, it makes perfect sense. The Brewers were down two in the ninth inning. Alex Claudio is going to have to face some right-handed batters. That, like, that's just part of the deal in that situation. You're not going to be able to keep him out of all situations where he's going to face a right-handed batter. You, he will have to face some righties, and when you're down already and you're very likely to lose a game that you're down to heading into the ninth, that's one of those situations where you just kind of have to wear it, but it, it, it does cause problems for people watching it and seeing it and going, well, he just can't get right-handed batters out right now, and, and he's had sort of an up-and-down career against right-handed batters. It's, yeah, and I, it's I not guess, a rule. J, JP, I want to ask, you know, we, we were talking about when they acquired Claudio that... Uh, a couple years ago, he showed an ability to get out both lefties and righties. You know, like last year, he really struggled uh, with right-handed batters and was, you know, unpitchable against him. Are we kind of seeing who Alex Claudio is at this point, if there are questions as to who he could be when he was acquired by the Brewers? Yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a good question. I Because there are still a lot of things to me that suggest Claudio can actually be successful against righties. Uh, he actually has kind of your prototypical reverse split repertoire he's a guy who's primarily fastball changeup and that changeup dies away from righties which is a good pitch against them it's largely been the fact that you know they've kind of teed off on some of his fastballs it, it's probably a little bit to do with his delivery in which they can pick up the ball a little bit easier against them but even in may when i get that there has to be a reliever or two every single month that like everybody can't like everybody just thinks needs to be off the team but you know whether it's and and some of the time it's legitimate right like oliver drake everybody hated him and and you know he's back up with the rays but uh but he's like traveled to however you know probably half the league and alex claudio right now is the guy that is very visibly struggling he's struggling against uh kind of opposite handed guys and so it looks it looks terrible, but when you do actually look at what he's been doing, you know his his peripherals look good. He's striking out about uh, eight per nine. Uh, he's like his walk rate's really good. 
he's still getting some ground balls. It's just the fact that he's just been giving up home run after home run, and that's been really difficult to watch. But if you're still trying to figure out why can't he get righties out, like most of the time we say it's a guy who's fastball slider and he doesn't have a good pitch against righties. That's not the case for Claudio. He does have a good pitch against righties. And that's why he has had success in the past against righties. So we just kind of need to see where it goes out. I wouldn't be cutting bait on him whatsoever, but I understand, you know, at some point, sometimes they they feel like they need to make moves. Um, I don't necessarily know if Claudio has any options remaining or anything like that. I don't keep up on that as well as I maybe should. But Claudio is somebody that, for me, I'd like to see on the team throughout the rest of the year. And I do think that he can get get righties out eventually because he's got pretty good pretty good stuff um and and he's the kind of picture he's like the weird reliever that i really like yeah he steve hates him though because of his windup right the weird rocking back and forth and, little and the giving up runs thing <laughs> yeah but I'm not a fan of that but but that's like why i like him is the is the like i want to i'm sorry but if you've got a dude who throws like 85 miles an hour has a weird windup and is a plus changeup, that's like a pitcher that's designed for me to like him yeah, I don't want all that stuff. I want somebody who just gets the ball and fires it back at the catcher. Like, you're a relief pitcher. You got two pitchers at most. Like, there shouldn't be a lot of thought and discussion on all this. Yeah, I mean, getting back to Jerry's question. It's, yeah, I guess, what do you see Claudio as? I mean... Next year is the question. Yeah, next year's more the issue. Because once you have to face three batters on a regular basis, unless you happen to end an inning, you know... It's going to be difficult to deal with this sort of uh, struggling against right-handed batters, but I, this does feel like it's something of an outlier. Like, he isn't this bad against right-handed batters, but... Well, but he's shown the ability to be this bad against right-handed batters before. He's shown the ability to be bad. This is a little exceptional, and I think a lot of this is just, you know, you give up a few home runs, and there's some runners on. And when you're a reliever, that gets hard to dig out I mean, of. You, can, you can make a small sample size argument, sure, for the extreme inflated numbers at the moment. But he's still shown the ability to get lit up by righties pretty good. But, but literally, this is the exact conversation we have about every single middle reliever ever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially guys who are, you know, like, have heavy platoon splits. Yeah, hey, what about Matt Elbers? In, an, in or out on him? Uh, I don't care. I mean, like, is my actual answer. I don't actually care. I, I would, if if the answer is like, what are they going to, Donnie Hart's going to be the guy who comes up? Like, I, there's no real difference. What I find frustrating about Elbers is I'll watch, I'll watch him pitch. I'll see that ball move. And I think this guy should be pretty good. And, and he, then he more and often he than has, not, he is. And he has stretches where he can be a really good pitcher but then when it falls apart i mean it's just a disaster well he just gets teed off on and he like everybody else nowadays when they're a little bit off the ball just flies out of the park and well, that's right but uh you know and if you're talking about balls flying uh brandon woodruff another rbi single <laughs> get, get it done he's got a brandon couple hits i know we talked about it what was it a couple of weeks ago that we talked about it on the podcast that we were talking about brandon woodruff and i was lamenting the fact that he was hitting 100 for a while or he was like he was hitting a thousand for a while well and he's and, showing he, he drove one opposite field and then he absolutely. just pulled one yeah i, I mean it, every you you can't shift against brandon brandon woodruff if oh, only all pitchers hit like this then there wouldn't be any need for a dh but look everyone, everyone doesn't Everyone wants to sit here and talk about Otani in, in Los Angeles. And what they really need to be doing is tuning in to Brandon Woodruff when he steps into the plate. Dude can rake. And he can pitch. He is, I know. He's on an checks. exceptional run of pitching. I know. Yes. I'm not going not gonna to mention anything because Steve already yelled at me once about what's happening in this game. Oh, I was commenting on Otani. Yeah, I know. But I'm talking about Woodruff. Yeah, we don't talk about that because, also because I need the points. You sound you sound like Ryan. I need the point. You know what? My fantasy team matters as much as anything else. I needed I, to it, you. <laughs> it it personally reflects on me. So I need guys on my team to pitch well, and he's pitching well. Um, okay, we have uh, first base production, which has been pretty poor so far. I think is another uh, spot of need at the moment. Um, so far, the May splits uh, for Jesus Aguilar, who we thought maybe was breaking out. 
when he had that game against the the Rockies towards the end of April. Uh, he's sitting 255, 403, 298. Things, I mean, that 403 is a spicy meatball. That's that's pretty good. He's hitting for no power. He's right. hitting that's for the, zero power. I, that is that is a problem, but it also I think it reflects that pitchers are still shying away from throwing real into okay the hold on we're gonna get into that thames is hitting a buck 92 382 yeah 382 250 so it's another similar issue um and then travis shaw started his rehab appearance and he's one for 13 in triple a so there isn't a whole lot uh i guess immediately of use for the brewers at the moment but i yeah the on-base percentages are decent for these guys they seem to have settled into kind of a platoon as well, though Aguilar is seeing some action against right-handed starters. But Thames is getting quite a few starts, the majority of the starts well, against he's, right-handed Yeah, he's starters. a lefty. Um, I guess, JP, yeah, Ryan points to the on-base percentage. Do you see that as a positive, or are there some underlying issues that people should just be aware of when you have hitters like that? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's problematic not just because it – it's always concerning when you're trying to, sh- to say that somebody is having uh, somebody's plate discipline is good and they understand what pitches they need to attack. But when they do attack the right pitches, they can't do anything with it. That's a problem. Right. I mean, we've seen that with Travis Shaw over and, you know, and he talked about needing a chance to kind of reset. And one of the biggest things that we were seeing is he was get, he, like he could lay off the breaking balls outside the zone and then he was getting low to mid 90 fastballs right down the middle of the plate, right at the belt. And he couldn't even make contact. And that's a, that is a bigger problem than, you know, I don't necessarily know what to make of it. And I haven't, as I said, I haven't watched many games over the past week, so I don't necessarily know anything in particular about what they've been doing recently. But to me, I'm, and everybody who's listened to this and you guys know this, like, I'm not really quick on the trigger to make changes. Like we've seen this enough to know. Well, but what changes could they even make at the moment? Brian Braun first base. <laughs> yeah, but when he's mashing, do you really want to like upset that? I, I, I would. I'd. I'd be hesitant to move him when he's hitting at the moment. Right. Well, Braun at first isn't a thing. They haven't even really worked him out there. He, he didn't get time there in spring training like he did last year. That's you not could, happening. You could trade for Chris Davis and put him at first base. Yeah, because that was something that they tried in like 2013, and it went awfully. Okay, yeah. well, anyways, there, there's been a lot of hand wringing about you know hitting with runners in scoring position, and so yeah, these guys are getting on base because they're taking walks, but they aren't driving anyone in with these plate with their approaches at the plate right now. At first base, no, those guys are having this issue. They are hitting in a significant position in the lineup. They are. They're getting guys on base when they get up. And sure, they they might at best take a walk. That's not driving in the runs they need for the most part. No, and they have struggled getting runners in when they're on base lately. But that's, you know, that is... We talked about it last week. It's a thing that comes and goes. Yeah, it comes and goes. But I'm saying when you have guys that these are the lines that they're putting up for a month, like... There is some reason behind that. When you have guys who, yeah, they aren't making a ton of outs and they're getting on base, but they can't push anyone across because all they can do basically at the moment is draw a walk. I mean, at a certain point, they're really not getting it done in this lineup for what this team needs at the moment. But at the same time, like when it comes down to it, if you said they don't really have an option to do anything different, then like I don't necessarily... At some point, you just go, yeah, hope, hopefully they break out of it. Can Keston Hira play first base? No. No, he can't? No, just like just like you didn't want Ryan Braun. To I play. mean, we've had sub-six-foot first baseman before. It was, was Alex Gonzalez the last one who did that? I mean, was Fielder Alex Gonzalez? Was, oh, famously. geez, I forgot about Gonzalez. We had Uni B, wasn't he? Oh, Uni's got to be taller than six foot. The less we uh, talk about 2013, the better. <laughs> you know, and then you had Prince for years. Don't you remember Blake Lolly played first base for a bit too? Nope. Uh, Unieski Betancourt is five ten. All right, fair enough. There you go. See, it's a history of it. I think. Well, and that would protect his arm. <laughs> oh, no. Kessin, I thought you were yeah. talking. I thought you were like really concerned with Uni B's arm, and I was like, I, I guess. Well, I, I saw him make some throws where the, it had me concerned about his arm, but I don't think we're going to be. Alex Gonzalez is six one. Well, look at that. Didn't I guess. That. I mean, we'll see if if pitchers start challenging Thames and Aguilar more. 
if they start coming in and pounding the zone against them because they're not worried about them hitting the ball hard, then that would be a time for me to get concerned. But as long as they're still getting on base, this is playable. You can work around this in your lineup. It's generally on almost every day, it's only one spot in your lineup. So you can kind of work around that. If a guy's getting on base at a plus 350 clip, He's not a hole in the lineup. He's he's giving you at least something that way. I know it's not ideal at first base. I mean, you're talking about first basemen who are sub 700 OPS hitters. But on on base is much more important than it is. But when you need to drive in multiple runs when there's an opportunity, and they have they've had a lot of opportunities lately to drive in multiple runs with the swing. Okay, but you're putting all this on first base. There's eight other positions in the lineup. Well, but when you have one position, which is generally a run producing spot in the lineup, it can, that it can cause problems that but it's cannot not. drive the ball at all. But so here, so two things for me, number one, if the biggest problem in the Brewers lineup right now is the fact that they've got somebody who's getting on base too much and not hitting for enough power, like we're probably okay. Yep. Well, should uh, they start, you know, just leading off with these guys? I think Thames <laughs> did lead off a game this week. Thames has done that. The council had done that with Thames a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. But the, it would be the interesting other, to see Aguilar as a leadoff hitter. People the other thing nuts. to like, the other thing to think about too for me is if the biggest problem is is they're not able to if if for stretches in this month they've not been able to drive in runs when they get people on base. I don't. I'm not convinced that that's a problem that's going to exist throughout the entire year. Are you starting to get worried about Aguilar just not being able to drive the ball? I don't. Well, it's interesting because like, you know, like I was. I was somebody that actually talked quite a bit that we didn't really know who Jesus Aguilar was yet. And that all of this stuff about projecting him to be an above average first baseman was basically on three months of production. But this has made it a lot more confusing. Well, right. That's why I'm saying, like, in some ways, if he was going to struggle, this is actually not the way I would have envisioned him struggling. So it's it's a kind of a weird situation for me to think about it. But at the same time, like you can get first baseman like they got Jesus Aguilar for nothing. They, you know, every single year it's like CJ Cron goes to the twins and because he's on the twins, he has to hit home runs. And uh, so he's been great. You know, G-Man Choi has been a productive guy at first base for fourth at Rays. Like we've seen that guys consistently can find first baseman to be serviceable on uh, just off the waiver wire or basically for free at times. Right. Like and in some ways, too, I think about the fact that, oh. And, you know, this is kind of like down the road. I'm blaming this on JP. Oh, that's fine. He's if somebody gave up. He gave up a home run. Life will go on. It wasn't and, just gave up a home run that blew the no hitter. You're not allowed to say no hitter. It blew the perfect and, uh, game. It blew the perfect game. Yeah. Well, I blame you for not allowing me to say it on the podcast. And uh, you were and, yapping about it before we even started. I know. I'm suggesting that it was your fault. <laughs> um, and but the other thing to think about too is there's actually some teams across baseball that might be in positions in which they need to trade that they've actually got pretty good first baseman that might be for sale. Um, not saying that like good younger first baseman that, you know, the Mets don't seem to want to give Dom Smith a chance and he's like got an OPS over 900 and can't get that bat. And so there, there are a lot of options across the league. If this ends up being a thing that we're sitting here in July saying that these guys can't hit and they need to look for another option, they'll have other options to be available, whether it's the waiver wire or the trade, uh, the trade market. It won't be a big thing. I would be really surprised if we're sitting here in August and they've traded for a first baseman like that would be pretty surprising to me because I think they have a number of needs that go right. well in front of that. Yeah, but, but I mean, do they have a long-term vested interest in Aguilar? And Thames' contract is up after this season. Thames' contract is up after this season, uh, though I think they have an option. But Aguilar has three years of control after this, so... Sure, but I mean, he's shown the ups and downs. I mean, are they really going to be invested in Jesus Aguilar that much? I don't know that they necessarily are looking to give him a long-term contract, but I think that he is That's, a perfectly cromulent option. I guess. I, now, we do have a question from uh, Jay Google on Twitter. Uh, he asked, what's the plan with Shaw going forward? Would they possibly move him to first base? I mean, they got they got to find Shaw some confidence at the at at the plate in general. Uh, he's got to prove that his, his wrist is healthy. He's got to show that he can hit the ball 
in AAA before we're talking about bringing him up and bringing him into first base. Yeah, I mean, what is Shaw right now? He's like Jesus Aguilar and Eric Thames without the large number of walks that lead to a good on-base percentage. So he's not pushing his way into this conversation. I've long thought, you know, a long-term potential first baseman that could happen with with Travis Shaw, but not this year. That's not a... So he, like JP said, he needs to show that he can swing the bat and drive the baseball and get back to the big leagues, you know, and they will work him in, though whether or not that means sending Keston Hero back down, I don't know. We'll see where he's at. It, it's, I think a lot of that's going to depend on what Keston Hero does, too. I mean, he's been kind of a mixed bag so far. He's been... Wait, he, Keston Hero's been a mixed bag. That's he, what, is, he has 17 strikeouts and like 42 plate appearances. So, he, yeah, you know, I was just that checking is it. A little, I was just, a little problem. I was just checking our prop bets. And and we have it set at the prop bet for Kesson Hira for his OPS on the season. It was Ricky Weeks, right? Ricky Weeks, seven twenty seven. Okay. What do you think Kesson Hira is at right now? Mm, seven sixty or something. He's at seven twenty. Oh wow! <laughs> so we we have that uh, over under. We're going to be able to watch that pretty close. But I mean, if he's playing second base and putting up a seven twenty uh, OPS, JP, don't you think that's there's no reason to move Hira? Unless Shaw shows something remarkable as far as the turnaround is concerned. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, yeah, here is struck out some like that. He's going to it's not a perfect situation where he's going to come up and be like fantastic right away. Um, He's shown an ability to drive the ball. He's he's shown it's kind of a surprising, uh, a surprising inability to sometimes catch up with some fastballs that are pretty good fastballs in the zone. Um, but he's also getting beat high quite a bit with the fastball. That seems to be kind of a hole right now for him. But it's not it's not something in which. Guys, you know, we talked about this for so long with guys like Woodruff, with guys, like you need to give guys an opportunity to to like mess up and not think that every single time they do something bad, they're going to get sent down. Yes, like, oh, I agree. And he's also been better than I was expecting defensively. He's made some very nice slick plays in the it, field. It took him less time to turn a double play than it took Mike Moustakis. No, I mean, nice. he he actually well, has some range. And but I'm just saying, the option that they had at second base playing Moustakis there was not defensively an optimal position. No, it wasn't. That was a get-his-bat-in-the-lineup situation. Yeah. That was not a he's-there-for-defensive-reasons. Hero's currently hitting 256, 310, 410. It's, it's acceptable. I'm just saying it's not. What do you mean acceptable? That is a good line for a 22 year old second baseman. Sure, that's yeah. It's like it's fine for, for what two weeks. Yeah, for two. But if if he just continued that for the season, yeah, no one would be disappointed in Kesson here this season. I mean, there are some people who probably say, well, he's not you know rookie of the year. He didn't come up and like light the league up. Yes, there would be that opinion. There is. There's. Around. But I mean, Vlad Jr. just hit what his first home run last week or something like that. Yeah, I mean, he he got off to a little bit of a slow start. I, the thing with, with Hira is there is Travis Shaw sitting in the background, and Shaw's bat should be better than Hira's at this point. And the fact that it's not is the thing that's keeping Shaw out of the lineup. But that can change in a relative hurry, and then you're going to have to kind of balance it out and say, well, how do we, how do we live? Because I don't know that you can have both of them on the roster at the same time. Well, we, we got a question on that. Facebook for, from Ted Langer, and he asked that. If Shaw shows enough improvement in AAA ball, Will they just move someone else off the roster? I think so. I mean, what's the the option though? Because you can't take Perez off the roster because Perez is your backup shortstop. So no, but like at the same time, if your option is to bring up Travis Shaw, who can play first base and is a lefty, again, your conversation is whether or not there's an option to have Thames on the roster. And if he doesn't hit, that's okay. That's yeah, valid point. Thames is potentially expendable in that way, though. I still think. That would it would be tough. But. They have no real investment in Thames after this season, and he's sure. not a young player. Nope, he's and, not. And and like this isn't a conversation in which you do everything to keep every single player who might have value down the road. Like you can't sit and make decisions always on your roster, thinking about what happens if he goes somewhere else and is fantastic for two months. Are you going to regret letting him go? Like that's not that's not what you make roster decisions based on. You know, you have to make the best decision you can with the information you have in the moment and live with it. But yeah, 
I think you I think you do look at Thames as a guy who when he is on, when he is hot, he can carry an offense. Because we've seen him put up months where so can, he's putting up like put up like OPSs. A month. So can Travis Shaw. So can Jesus Aguilar. There's a good argument to say that. So can Keston Hira. There's a good argument to say so can Mike Moustakis. Like, you're not dealing with the fact that you need one guy because everybody else on your roster can't carry you, so you need the one guy that can carry you for a month. Yeah, I mean, to, to jettison Thames, though, we would have to see something from Shaw to, to force that kind of a decision. Well, abs- absolutely. But, yeah, I mean, that is a potential way you could get... It wouldn't take an extreme performance. I mean, if he shows just accept, you know, acceptable patience at the plate and some return to form as far as, as far as his power is concerned, that would probably be enough to push Thames off the roster. Well, he'd have to be better than Thames. So, which you can, yes, Thames does have long stretches of being poor as well. So, I mean, if Shaw was back up to a three twenty on base and his slugging returned to what four fifty or above. I, that's what he does. It, yeah. I mean, I mean, I would say that would probably push Thames off. I know you like depending Thames, on, depending on what else. Is I know going you like Thames's, you know, three eighty two on base percentage, but unless he starts hitting with power, that is not going to hold. No, and that's what we'll see. That we were talking about that. That we will have to see if pitchers start pounding the zone on him and Aguilar, and they don't. M- start driving the ball, then that's what I'm going to get concerned. I guess, JP, what's your view on Thames long-term? Uh, long-term meaning in like the next three years or like for the rest of the season? The rest of this season and possibly next year. That he could be serviceable, but also could be non-rosterable. Right? Like, I mean, he's he's a guy that, you know, we've seen highs and lows from him. We've seen the fact that he struggled to stay healthy. Um, we've seen him as a great clubhouse guy in which I would imagine there'd be another team that would absolutely come in and pick him up right away. He'd be a great mentor for younger players. If you're talking about bringing him into a team, like, you know, if you're talking about Miami or something like that, but you know, he's not a guy that you're like, you are going to have to make tough decisions on, on these types of players. I mean, you know, we, we talked about Eric Kratz as being like, He's a great clubhouse guy. He has, you know, certain skills that are great to have on the team, but you can find that kind of guy on the waiver wire. Is Eric Thames a first base version of that? Yeah. I mean, he's not all that different from G-Man Choi, who was actually quite good for the Rays last year. The Brewers let him go for, well, they didn't let him go for nothing. They got Brad Miller, but and then Brad Miller left. Close uh, to nothing. Well, yeah. They had Brad Miller tra- turned out to be nothing. There are some fees they had to pay in that transaction. And... There were well, they had probably play for pay for a flight, um, and there was there. There's a conversation to say like the type of player that Eric Thames is. You can find on the waiver wire, like you can. I I don't. That's not a very difficult profile to find. I, like how many guys are even sitting in AAA that are dudes with big power and can take walks but struggle to hit for average at first base. There's plenty of them. Yeah, so I that's why I think I again I know you like to cite his current on base percentage, but it just seems like well his on base percentage for his run with Milwaukee has been pretty good. So he takes a lot of walks. It is, but if you're not driving the ball when you get the opportunity, I think you've kind of outlived your usefulness, or you're not a guy that needs to be like there doesn't need to be a death grip on keeping Eric Thames on this roster. So, uh, hey, Jimmy Nelson, he was optioned to AAA, so he was activated off of the IL. Um, but he had options left, so they were able to keep him in AAA, and he gets to keep working on his stuff a little bit. So I guess what do the Brewers need to see before they feel comfortable bringing Jimmy Nelson up to the major leagues? And um, I guess how long do you think this is going to take? I mean, we've been trying to guess at when we're going to see Jimmy Nelson for a long time now. Actually, pretty much the entire existence of this podcast has been us guessing at what's going to happen with Jimmy Nelson. Yeah, we pretty much started when he got injured. It was a few weeks before, yeah. So I I can't say for sure what that's going to take. Uh, I, I do know that there's some concerns about the velocity being a bit down from where it was when he got hurt. 
But then the question wait, becomes... Wait, wait, wait. Are you saying a guy with a major shoulder injury can't quite throw as hard? Right. That's the thing. Well, will he ever get that back? Is that something that's going to happen down the road? What exactly are they looking at to try to make this decision? What really, are you, really hard to say. I think we'd like to see good performances in AAA. What are you basing that velocity report on? Because when he was in extended spring, actually, they were talking about his velocity was up kind of pre-surgery norms. I heard people talking his last start. He was mostly like 91, 92, which so you say like, that I saw 92, 93, which seems to frame it in a different. Oh, sure. it's a mile an hour. It seems to frame it in a different 90, light. 92, 93. But he was a guy who was averaging when he got hurt. He was up above 95. But like he was the, averaging 95. The idea that fastball. the idea that guys can't fluctuate their velocity in, in like start to start. Is weird. No, it, it they absolutely can. I'm saying that my best guess is they want to see some of that. They want to no, see some velocity come back. I I I, uh, I understand our need to like figure out what's wrong with him, but I was looking at what the starting pitching has done in May. We don't have a single starting pitcher in May who has an ERA over four three. What they're doing is keeping him down there. Maybe they're talking about a reason you know, to keep him down there. So they're not just saying they're kicking the can down the road. They're going with their rotation right now because it's been pretty good. And they're just saying, we're going to wait until we need to make this decision. Yeah. Their hand hasn't been forced at this point, though. I think Jimmy Nelson is not a guy that you could keep down there for the next two months in that sense. If, if things were going well, if you were actually performing well, that, he hasn't performed badly. No, no, no. I'm, I'm saying if the team continues, if, if a hole doesn't open for him to come into, I think they're going to have to make a decision. It's funny how that always comes up like, oh, if a hole in the rotation doesn't come up, major league pitchers are going to get hurt. Somebody's going to need some time off. Nelson's spot is going to open up at some point. You would, you would think. I can't imagine him staying down long term, though, even if one doesn't. So, But J I mean... I I also will say, too, and this is not something I have any inside knowledge on, but it's something that they've talked about over the last few weeks. He's also talked about the fact he's actually really appreciated the fact they've been keeping him in San, San Antonio so he can go see his, his twins in Houston. Hmm. Okay. I mean, I'm not saying that this is why he's staying down there, but I also could see because they're still as far as I know, they're still in the hospital. Like, by all accounts, like get like healthy everything is very very positive in terms of the health of his of his twin girls like it, I, everything seems great but he has talked about multiple times the fact that he appreciates the fact that they continue to let him go to san san antonio or to, to houston from san antonio so i could also see something in which you know like maybe he needs a couple more starts to be able to kind of build some arm strength or whatever you want to say but he's also dealing with some pretty intense family stuff. And so we don't, I know that other things they've done for minor league players to be able to allow them to do things for family um, multiple times, like for, for pretty big prospects. And so sometimes these, these guys are human and, and may, I, I would imagine he'd like to be up in the big leagues. Uh, I'm not saying that he's like made this choice, but at the same time, like that could be something that's out there. And obviously we continue to wish him and his family, but you know, the best. Yeah, it's a tough situation for Nelson, and I mean, as far as we know, at the moment, everything's going all right. That Yeah, last I heard, things were going fine. Yeah, so, so hopefully uh, that turns around, and then maybe that's one of the reasons they're just giving him some time. So we have a uh, Patreon question from Steve Romanesco. It's a long one, so we'll see if I can get through all of this. Tom Hardricourt tweeted that the biggest difference between Peralta's struggles this year versus last year is that batters are getting a lot more hits off him. How much of that can be attributed to teams knowing what to expect from Peralta from him being a more known quantity in the big leagues with hitters seeing him more, more game film, etc. On that note, how much scouting is available on an opposing player if they've just been in the minors? And basically, is there anything to somebody coming up and being an unknown or a surprise? I think it's less common these days to be able to truly take people by surprise. I think he did have a little bit of an advantage with Colorado because it was such a last second thing and it seemed to catch them by surprise. So, and it's not like he's, he's had real great success of the Rockies since then. So, I mean, it wasn't like a particularly good matchup or something. So I think he caught them a little bit by surprise, but the way things work now with the amount of video that's available, the amount of, you know, stack data, 
it, there are very few secrets. Things don't stay a secret for very long in MLB because there's just too many people working, whether it's video coordinators or scouts or whoever, there's just too many people looking at players, trying to f solve them as you know problems, basically, that it's going to stay uh, a secret. I will say about Peralta, though, he has really benefited from the switch to the bullpen. He now has nine innings in relief this year and has a two ERA. He's struck out 10 and walked two. Does so, that surprise you? Because I think you've been the he can't move to the bullpen guy. I've, I was skeptical of his ability to pitch out of the bullpen because I worried about him the first inning issues, the settling in issues. How many guys have we worried about that with? Peralta, Corbin Burns, Chase Anderson. I don't think I worried Ju about it. Junior Guerra. That specific issue with oh, settling yeah, in? Oh, yeah, it's come up every single time. Corbin Burns? No. Yes, I'm sure you have. JP, uh, I guess how much is Peralta known quantity at this point? You know, we, we say he throws a few different fastballs, but is that enough once uh, teams have an idea of how that fastball moves? No, I don't. I I think it's much more um, kind of long term issues that we've known about Freddy Peralta just kind of coming to the fore. Everybody pretty much knew what Freddy Peralta was going to be coming in. It, that he was just going to throw a whole lot of fastballs and he gets a ton of extension. So it's a it's a live fastball that comes in faster than its velocity indicates. But the big thing to think about with his uh, his fastball when we say he throws a lot of different fastballs, it's his fastball just moves in different ways. Like he's, he's not like purposefully trying to run it, cut it, you know, do all those sorts of things. Like he's a guy who just gets a lot of weird movement on his fastball and it rises quite a bit. Is that why he struggles with command as much as he does? I think so. That that's my, that's my personal opinion. Um, I'm sure there are people that, you know, are smarter than me that have a better opinion on it. But like, so last year guys were hitting 193 off his fastball this year, they're hitting 310. And a lot of that is just straight batting average on balls in play. Like they're hitting for a little bit more power, but they had a 267 batting average on balls in play against his, his fastball last year. This year, it's up about 360. It's to me kind of Freddie Peralta. He's going to be this guy. He's going to be a guy that's going to live off his fastball. He has to throw strikes and at times he's going to miss a ton of bats. At times it's going to look bad. Um, and it's one of the biggest reasons why we've talked about Freddie Peralta as potentially being more of a back end bullpen or more of a, a back end rotation guy. He's just he's a little bit more volatile, but he's a guy. He's not unlike um, Tyler Chatwood with with the Cubs, a guy who throws a lot of fastballs, a guy who th struggles with his his uh, his location. But if he's on for a day he looks pretty damn good and can be darn near unhittable. Um, but on days where it, you know, it looks like he can't, he couldn't pray to hit the strike zone from 40 feet. Um, and it, it's hard because at the same time, you don't want to change the type of pitcher he is. They've talked a lot about whether or not he needs to throw his breaking ball more. Um, but for me, I think he's just kind of, he's struggling with a little bit of batted ball luck this year, but he's also, struggling with his command uh still quite a bit this year i don't i didn't look at it, his kind of splits between his, being a, a starter and a reliever this year i'd be surprised if i'm not necessarily sure what like being a reliever does for him like why he would be better as a reliever he seems to be throwing his curveball a little bit more now we do have, that we might have, be just an outlier we have a question from chris croninger and this is not just Peralta focus, but what does the pitcher have to do to prepare to switch from the rotation to the bullpen or vice versa? Well, I mean, the most obvious answer when you're switching from the rotate or into the rotation, you generally need to stretch out a little bit and get used to going a little bit longer. And teams generally don't want to just have a guy who is coming in for 20 to 30 pitches at a time, all of a sudden go 90 pitches. There's usually a process involved in stretching a guy out. Um, there's also, I think when guys move to the bullpen, you will see them shelve their less effective pitches, which is exactly what you've seen with Freddie Peralta. He, he was never throwing his change all that much, but he's down now this month to under 1% of the time throwing his change. So you know, you'll see guys shelve pitches that they maybe don't have the most confidence in because they just don't have as much of a reason to throw them. So I think that those are kind of the big things that stand out. There's probably... Depending on the person, there's also some like mental things that go into it. Jimmy Nelson, they talked about 
one of the things that's come up a lot this week is how much mental preparation he does and how people are like, yeah, it doesn't really him pitching out of the bullpen would be weird because he's such a preparation routine focused person in terms of how he goes about preparing for his starts that it would be people think it would be weird for him to make that transition. JP. I, well, for me, one of the biggest changes is how you pitch. Um, There is certainly, there is certainly a, a, you know, you can kind of move from three pitches or four pitches down to two pitches. You kind of maximize your fastball velocity because you don't have to save any in the tank. But a lot of the time when you're a starter, you are using your first at bat to kind of set up your second at bat. You're kind of not throwing all of your pitches because you don't want to necessarily get let somebody look at everything because, you know, you know, you have to fake them another time or two on the exact same day. So sequencing matters more. You're going to have a lot of there's a lot less um, focus on sequencing when you're a reliever because you can just kind of go out and let it fly. Did you see that? I don't know exactly what happened. Okay. I'm trying to follow what's happening because we had the sound off on the game. I just have the the video on. Uh, There's another confrontation with Mike. Mike Mike Moustakis just got tossed from the game and he was playing third base at the time. Nice. Good. Um, to, to and so I'll let, we'll get back to that. I'm going to finish <laughs> my my quick thought here yes. is yeah, yeah. Peralta being in the bullpen. I don't see him how he would sequence any differently whatsoever than when he was a starter because he basically pitches in the exact same way. Uh, and yeah, I mean, guess he threw his changeup as a starter like three percent of the time, and now he's throwing at one percent. That doesn't matter. Well, especially in the small sample like that. I mean, yeah, it doesn't yeah. take much. He does seem to be throwing his curve a little bit. Like a substantial amount more, but we'll see if that a a little bit, a substantial amount more. He's at twenty three percent now. He was down, you know, at fifteen in April. So, I mean, yeah. So that's like eight. So that could be like five, six pitches over the course of like a month. Oh, you're talking for May. Yeah, 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 that's true. Because I mean, he was he was throwing his curveball eighteen percent in in uh in March. He was throwing at sixteen percent in April, and now he's up to twenty three percent in in May. Like that's not a huge difference when you're talking about month to month sample size, especially if he's pitching out of the bullpen. So that's fair. For, there's not all that much difference going on there. It's I I don't think there's any anything like special that would make Freddie Peralta better. Uh. In, in the bullpen. I mean, the biggest thing that we had this conversation last time was about uh, Willie Peralta as well. And I actually thought Willie Peralta would be good transitioning to the bullpen because it would allow him to kind of, uh, I thought he was actually going to get another mile per hour or two. Well, I thought he'd be able to, to try to um, like maximize his a little bit and try to get a little bit more break on it. And he actually was bad. So <laughs> he kind of had a moment there where I think people thought he was going to be, well, and then he started the bullpen for Kansas City. I know he went to Kansas City and was their uh, closer, and then it was bad <laughs> again. So I was really surprised. I thought he was going to be somebody that could really. Ma- but the thing is, with Milwaukee, he had a lot of things that it thought he, everybody thought he was going to be, and he, yeah, whatever sure. the situation was. It, well, I mean, I he wasn't. The, dude, dude had a ninety-six mile an hour power sinker. That is generally a very good place to start but like, as a pitcher. The most, the the craziest thing to me about Peralta when he was pitching out of the bullpen in Milwaukee was he clearly hated it. Like he visibly when he was pitching. Um. And that was just like, that was really weird. And I don't know how you can necessarily account for those sorts of things. But like, he visibly looked like he absolutely hated pitching out of the bullpen transition there with Milwaukee. Yeah. Okay. So, final question here for the week. Uh, well, no. Hold on. Just quick. Oh, do what you want to go to the Mustakis news? Yeah. What happened? I, that's all I have. Because, like I said, we're in the sound on it. So, I have no idea why he got tossed at the was moment. He, was he in the was he in the field? Was he batting? There was some pitch, and then he turned around to the uh, third base ump and was pleading his case about something. And it was Estabrook again. Yeah, and he got he got tossed. Nice. So and council came out and argued with him, but he did not get tossed. He looked pissed. Council was not happy. Well, but yeah. I mean, when your like third ba- when your third baseman gets tossed by the third base ump mid inning, mid inning in the field, I mean. You'd that, probably come out and say, that's a little odd. What the hell is happening? What? Please please explain this to me, because this generally doesn't happen very often. I wonder if Council said, leave my city now. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> this is really crummy, ump. 
Uh, <laughs> well, no. he let, yesterday that the the exchange of words. I was a little surprised Council didn't get a suspension because he looked like he was kind of intentionally bumping Estabrook with the bill of his cap a little bit. Like he was getting right into his face and letting him know about it. So. One, uh, so one time I, a buddy of like one of my best friends from childhood and I, we're, we're in, I think middle school, we went to a Badger basketball game. It was against, uh, the university of Pennsylvania, right? So Penn Quakers, we were sitting front row and we were sitting basically right behind, uh, the university of Pennsylvania, uh, bench. Apparently they had a rule on their team that they were not allowed to swear. Um, and so every well, they time are the Quakers. And every single time that their uh, head coach wanted to yell at the the uh, the refs, he would literally get up. He said, "That was a really crummy call, ref. That was crummy." And so we started yelling it at the coach right behind. Every I think time, more, I think more college coaches should be forced to do that, since well, all the players aren't getting paid. Like, hey, if they're not getting paid, if you want to be an asshole, you got to well, remember come up with well, who is it? The coach at Notre Dame, the current coach Brian Kelly, got in trouble for. Uh, profanity laced tirades towards players and officials yeah he, he actually got like reprimanded by the university they said no don't do this anymore what would happen to what's his name fran at iowa yeah, what fran. did happen we got suspended no <laughs> if he if he had to like, like there was a rule where he had to like you know tone it down i mean that was the case when so when i played uh golf in college like there, there was a rule that you could get penalty strokes for swearing and like the rule was you got warned once by your basically who you were playing against did it again they could start assessing penalty strokes to it so basically every single team in like our conference had made up basically swear words to be able to say after something happened so you so you couldn't like get in trouble for it uh, i thought maybe it, maybe you had teams that were easily offended well i'm sure well no it was basically an opportunity for like if something was close and you were playing with somebody who was a dick they could call you on it to try to get an advantage to to try to get like an extra stroke or two on you. Nice. So uh, finally, uh, final question from um, Mark Pudscarby. He asks, how many games on average do you each watch per week? This is, includes JP. For some reason, he thought like JP he wasn't going to answer. He needed to make that stand out. Yeah, JP, you can't get out of this when you have to answer it. I didn't. That's fine. Uh, I, I Maybe two. I don't watch all that. Much. I don't, I don't actually, I've found it's much better for me to enjoy things, to not actually watch as much. <laughs> um, summer, it gets a little bit easier. I, I tend to watch most games during the summer. Weekday games are hard during the school year because, you know, stuff going on. But during the summer, I, I tend to watch, you know, if I don't have anything else going on. The Brewer game is basically, I put the Brewer game on if I'm not, I won't watch something else over the Brewer game generally. I know you do a little bit, Steve. This is a long answer for like just a number. So like on average, I don't know, three to five. And I'm also going to a number of games. So yeah, you home. go to the most games out of all of us by yeah. far. Yeah. And I'm, I'm kind of in and out. Uh, you know, I got a kid. He's playing T-ball and stuff this year. So that means a couple days a week. Brewers are playing. I'm not home. So those weekday games are the easier ones to watch. Um, but yeah, I usually watch three or four, I'd say. Depends on if I want to combine a few days together to equal a full game. Sure, yes. You know, that kind of thing happens where I'll be in and out. So yeah, it just kind of depends on life. You know, we'll get late in the season. Things kind of settle down a little bit more. And especially when, when the games mean more. Well, especially when the yeah, when the games mean more, then yeah, then you're watching five to six games a week. Mm-hmm. Well, I was saying for me, like it's the fact that it's every single day that it's basically if there's nothing else going on, I'll I'll turn it on. Um, but I'm not going to schedule my life around Brewers baseball games. Or do you? Right? I mean, if you're in the house and you don't really have anything particularly going on, and there's a Brewer game on, I'll generally put it on, right? Like that. See, I'm more the type like during the week if I have to like mow the lawn in the evening, then I'll like listen to the game while I'm like mowing the lawn and stuff like that. Yeah, so I'll find ab- ways to kind of incorporate it that way. But for like, you know, Liverpool games that are once a week, maybe twice a week tops, like I'll schedule my day around making sure that I can watch it. But I'm well, not going to do that. They're done by like 9 a.m., right? I'm not going to I'm not going to do it. Well, it depends on the it, sometimes it's like three o'clock in the afternoon. But um, but most of the time it's like I'm not going to do that for six, seven t- times a week. And and I think the other biggest thing for me is uh, my wife actually doesn't really enjoy watching baseball that much. Uh, she enjoys watching soccer. So 
like if I just want to have any soccer game on, she's like totally cool with that. She loves watching college basketball. Like all of she'll she and I will watch every Badger basketball game together. But like she doesn't really care about baseball. So that's not something that I'll just have on in the background. Yeah. Amy prefers baseball to any other sport. So that works out well, especially since she likes going to games. So that is helpful in that sense. Yeah. I'll get yelled at for having basketball or something on, but not baseball. It's just part of the deal. 162 is a lot of games. And it'll just be it on. Really, like, yeah, you don't it, necessarily have to engage with it. It can just it be definitely, on. It definitely fluctuates. And lo- like we said, you know, late in the season, I think once stuff really starts to amp up, that, that changes viewing habits a little bit. That'll do it for this week. Don't forget that you can join our Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash tailgate. Patrons at the MNB and Ball and Glove levels receive the monthly Minor League Extra podcast. As always, follow us on Twitter at tailgate. You can submit questions to milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com or through our Facebook page for Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, Pocket Cast, wherever you listen. You should be able to find our podcast. Uh, you can also leave reviews and help more people find the podcast. So thanks for listening and look for us again next week on Milwaukee's Tailgate.